Some of you who are old timers in this church know uh, Bruce Wood, who used to worship with us. For those of you who don't know him, Bruce was a layman in this church who absolutely loved this church and made it evident to whoever came across his path. And one of the ways Bruce showed that love for this church was by looking after some of the practical needs. He took it upon himself to keep the church van in tip-top shape. In those days, that van would be used to uh, transport young people to these retreats and whatnot. So a lot of precious value was in those cars. And then every morning, early in the morning before any one of us probably ever got out of bed, Bruce would walk around this church with his flashlight and just making sure that all the windows and doors were secure. And he would do that late at night as well. Well, one morning he was doing this when all of a sudden a heavy hand descended upon his shoulder. A passing cop had seen a man walking around this church with a flashlight. And in a moment, Bruce was seized and pushed into the cruiser. Fortunately, a few words of explanation was sufficient to get, take care of that situation. But that incident has always reminded me of this text from uh, Philippians chapter 3. Where Paul's giving his testimony, he says, Not that I have already obtained all this or I have already been made perfect, but I press on to take a hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken a hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Paul described his conversion as being seized by Jesus and that the rest of his life was an attempt to discover what it was that he had been taken a hold of by Jesus for. And he also says that every one of us should think of our conversion this way. And I mentioned that to you on various occasions. That our decision to follow Jesus wasn't just to admit him into a compartment of our life. Maybe even the most important compartment of our lives. But rather that our conversion is Jesus taking hold of every dimension of our lives. And the rest of our lives is an attempt to find out what it is that he has taken a hold of us for and live that out. So it's a very appropriate text for this three-part series that we're drawing to a close. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mark talked about his own conversion. And he challenged us to, to serve in the light of eternity. Last week, Pastor Chris used the story of Jesus getting a hold of Matthew as a backdrop for his journey uh, of being seized by Christ, especially for ministry. How God confirmed that. And he challenged us to give the pen in our hands to Jesus, whatever that was. So I want to continue that today, and I want to talk about the various ways in which my life over the last 52 years from the time I became a Christian has been seized. And you'll see a reason for that extended focus as I continue the message. I want you to listen, not just because stories, anybody's stories are interesting, but also because there's a crucial relevance to every one of our lives where we are. Because our stories are interlinked and bridged through stories in scripture. So those are two stories I want to tell you this morning. My story and a story of one character in scripture. And then link it to our lives where we are today. I want to begin in 1950. I was five years old. I'd gone to my first school. Now because my mother tongue was Tamil, it was a school in which the medium of instruction was in Tamil. And, And that first week was just pure horror for me. I absolutely hated every day with a passion. I have no reason, I don't know why, but I had this longing to go to a school where the medium of instruction was in English. You see, I was five years old and I spoke three languages at that time. My mother tongue, Tamil, Hindi because we lived in North India, and English. And frankly, I was far more fluent in English than the other two languages by that age. 
Now fortunately this desire of mine happened to match a desire of my mother's for her firstborn son. And so I moved at the end of one week to a, to a Irish Christian brother's convent. And I spent my entire school years in that one school. As I was thinking of that, I was reminded of Sir Winston Churchill and how it was said during the World War that he mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. I was seized by a love for the English language. I had no reason why, didn't know why, and certainly my mother had no clue at all why. Now looking back upon it, I do. Fast forward 13 years. It was a month of May, May 21st. New Delhi, India, my hometown in May is about 115 degrees in the shade. But I was in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in the Youth for Christ summer camp. Every night we had an opportunity to hear the gospel presented to us. And on Sunday, on Wednesday evening, May the 21st, I was sitting in the back seat, relatively uninvolved, somewhat curiously listening to what was going on. When the altar call was given and 30 or 40 young people were singing just as I am without one plea. And in a moment, my heart began to thump. And this highly intellectually oriented individual had a strong emotional response to the person of Jesus. So I came to the front, knelt down, and next to me was my closest friend who would one day become my brother-in-law, Ravi. And he and I went forward the same night. And as, as we began to sing, just as I am, the tears began to flow down. And I was seized by the gospel in 1963. One year later, we had gone to the same summer camp. And I was back, and I was outside my Ravi's house waiting for him to come on out to, to play. And there was this pile of books that was lying there, destined for the garbage heap. I picked up one of them. It was a commentary by, on the book of Romans by a Welsh evangelical named Griffith Thomas. So I started reading it. It was interesting, so I, I took it with me. I was in university at that time and was living in the dorm. And every, every day I sp- spent studying Romans. And I had this strange desire that I should be sharing this with other people as well. So I went to the Youth for Christ director and said, I'd like to teach a Bible study. He said, what do you want to teach? I said, I want to teach the book of Romans. Well, I basically regurgitated everything that was in that book, you know. But that day, I was seized with a desire to study God's word and to teach it to somebody else. And that has remained unabated for 52 years. Fast forward 13 years now to the next seizure. By now, I was married. We had two children. And Sham and I were worshipping in this church and I was teaching an adult Sunday school class. Teaching a class in Hebrews. And Kesa and Clary was thinking that was the year you guys joined us in our church as well. And it was a Saturday night. Sham and her sister were singing somewhere. The two kids were asleep. And I was getting my books and studying for the Sunday school class the next morning. When I was seized by a single paragraph from Andrew Murray's commentary, The Holiest of All. And this is what I read. When we trust too much into the intellect and religion... And great care is not taken to receive each word from God into the heart. The heart gets close to the living voice of God. The mind is satisfied with beautiful thoughts and pleasant feelings, but the heart does not hear God. When we are secretly content with our religion and sound doctrine, unconsciously but surely the heart gets hardened. When our life does not seek to keep pace with our knowledge, and when we take more pleasure in hearing and knowing than obeying and doing, Then in the midst of all the pleasing forms of godliness, the heart is too hard to discern the voice of the spirit. It is an unspeakably solemn thought that with a mind occupied with religious truth and feelings stirred at times by the voice of men, the heart may be close to the humble, direct communion with God and a stranger to all the blessings that the living word can bring. I shut up my books and I was just riveted. You see, while my love to study and teach God's word had continued unabated, 
I had no personal communion with God that was vital at all. My prayer life was practically non-existent. So I was seized by a paragraph from a book. And that day, in addition to the pursuit of the mind, my heart began to seek after God as well. And that has continued unstopped for 38 years. I didn't know it at that time. It was actually preparation for the next seizure. Because three years later in 1980, the senior pastor of this church was seized by a calling to go to England after 19 years here in this church. And the elders of this church asked me whether I would join the staff of this church and become the preaching pastor here. Fast forward the next eight years to 1988, where the next seizure took place. But this was... God was preparing me for this all through those eight years. You see, even though I was a fruit or a product of world missions, because it was a Canadian missionary who had come to India, I I knew nothing about missions. My first few years were all with Youth for Christ in India. Everything was local. I came to North America, worshipped in Park Street Church in Boston, was involved as Campus Crusade for Christ. But, But the focus was all just local evangelism. Global mission was not on my radar screen at all. But of course, slowly being involved in Rexdale Alliance Church, I began to hear missionaries come and go. Uh, Three of my closest, especially my closest friend, David Nadine Brandon, went to Indonesia. Uh, Bev Shelrood, a colleague on staff, went to the Philippines. Bruce and Donna Edwards went to Zaire. And so now I had friends on the mission field. Now I began to read letters from missionaries that were different from anything you read in the denominational magazines. You saw life from the inside. And slowly I learned to pray for them. In 1986, I made my first trip overseas to Indonesia to speak to our international workers there. But all of this was preparation for a few months where three things, God seized me through three in three books that I read. I began to read the writings of a man named David Bryant. I wrote, read a book called Standing in the Gap. And he quoted one line from Robert, from Robert Coleman from Asbury Seminary. And I was seized by one sentence. If our lives are not being lived on the wavelength of the Great Commission... Our lives are irrelevant to the destiny of history. If our lives are not being lived on the wavelength of the Great Commission, our lives are irrelevant to the destiny of history. That day, I became a world Christian, however imperfect. I preached my first series of messages in the fall of 1988. I wrote my first book, which was subtitled, Living on the Wavelength of the Great Commission. It was around the same time when my brother-in-law Ravi approached me and asked me whether the elders of this church would release me to be involved in ministry with his organization. So for 12 weeks a year I was released by the elders and that took me all over the world. One of those trips four years later took me to Southern California. Where at the end of a teaching session an individual came to me and said, I think you would really like this book. I'd never heard of the man before, his name was John Piper. And the book was called Desiring God and that day I was seized. By the glory, by the concept of the glory of God. Notice I said very carefully, I, I, am not, I didn't say I was seized by glory. That's a lifelong journey. <laughs> That's why I love services like the songs we sang this morning. But I certainly was seized by the concept of glory. That God's glory and the pursuit of that glory was the goal and fuel of all mission. Local and global. Very shortly after that, I was to speak, in a month or so after that, I was speaking in Calgary at a missions fest. And I ended up getting the date wrong and I went there a day early. There was no mistake by God. Because a man named George Otis was speaking. And I learned all about the 1040 window. And how 15 million Christians were going to be praying that October. 
for a penetration of the unreached people groups of the 1040 window. And every two years, we had the praying through the window campaign. Well, I brought that back here to the church, and we began to do that. And then a few months after that, I was speaking at Student Mission Advance when David Bryant was leading the Concerts of Prayer. And the whole Concerts of Prayer movement came to our church. And very shortly after that, our first solemn assembly started. So over a period of three or four months, God seized me intensely through these three men and their writings and some personal experiences. That was 24 years ago, and there haven't been any seizures since. Until this past summer. But it was not so much a seizure as a release. That's why the text of this message, if you saw it in the bulletin, is called Seized, Released, and Waiting. You see, for the last five or six years in our church, we've been uh, going through the search for a preaching pastor. In, In the meantime, God has been transitioning some of our senior leadership. Some rather dramatically when he seized Pastor Nancy over three days and took her home to be with him. Others more gradually like Pastor Wayne and Pastor Heather. And it has been no secret that we've been looking for a preaching pastor during that time. But throughout this entire time, Sham and I never felt the freedom to give any kind of an ultimatum to the elders. In fact, one of my mentors who lives far away suggested that I probably should. But as my wife so wisely pointed out, that would be like David fighting with Saul's armor. We were not wired that way. What we wanted to do instead was to say to our elders, look, we will never leave the church in a lurch. So don't ever feel that you have to hire somebody in a panic. So they were quite happy with this arrangement and so we continued. But this past summer, as I was walking and praying, I was reading um, in Second First Chronicles, the life of David. As some of you know the story, David wanted to build a kingdom, a temple for God, but God said, no, you're not going to build it, your son's going to build it, but you may get all the provisions and the peep, everything lined up in place. So I was just reading uh, a few verses from, from this section on Chronicles. And then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. He was taking care of all the worship there. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the ark as each day required. And he left Zadok the priest and his brothers and the priest before the tabernacle to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly morning and evening. Then all the people departed each to his house and David went home to bless his household. And that sentence landed on me with such power. And basically it was God said, now it's time for you to move. It's time for you to redirect your attention to your family. Not just my nuclear family, not just the six grandchildren God has blessed us with, but my extended family. My brother and sister-in-law live in Singapore, my my mother who lives there, and some first cousins who live in Singapore, Australia. People that I grew up with and deeply loved, whom Sham knows so well, but whose lives and whose offspring have only been connected to us from a distance. So I went back home, and when I shared this with Sham, she reads the same Bible program that I do, and so she had read the same text. By the way, in that same text, God has also told us, I'm preparing a house for you. We didn't know how that was going to happen. We, we didn't own this parcel, and we lived here for 35 years. And so both those things happened that day, and so when I shared this with her, she said, yeah, we're, we're ready now. And so we talked to Pastor Chris and the elders, and let them know that this is what was happening. And so... As of this January, I moved to halftime and will be finishing by the end of June. Now, you might say, what next after that? Seize released and waiting for what? Well, we're not quite sure, 
but there are some things that have already come to our attention. I shared with you in the New Year's message on slothfulness that God had already warned me about being careful about sloth in this stage of our lives. And the need to focus relentlessly on the next generation of leaders and young men and women. And that's certainly one thing that is very clear. But then something else happened. During solemn assembly, as you know, our staff meets every day for prayer. We pray for each other. We go into each other's offices. We ask each person to share what's on their heart. And several others of the staff pray for them. Uh, Friday, it was going to be my turn. That morning when I was praying, I asked the Lord, what should I be asking our staff to pray for me? And it was interesting. He said, don't tell them. Just tell them to pray for you. And you listen while they pray. I'll tell them what to pray, not you. I was amazing. That's not usually my approach, you know. I like to think things through. And So I sat and four of them prayed. And the first, and it was just amazing. Beautiful prayers all linked together so beautifully. The first one just simply prayed that I would not be angry. That we would not, Sham and I would not be anxious. But just wait and receive what God has to give to us. The second prayer built upon that. And prayed that we would do nothing until we'd had a bit of an extended sabbatical for a while. And of course, the, the seven-year cycle happens to fit exactly where I normally would have taken a sabbatical at this time. The third individual prayed that we would continually be, make sure that our lives were marked by humility and meekness. That, was, that came to me both as a warning as well as an encouragement. And then Pastor Chris, who was the first, first one who knows my history so well, just rehearsed many of these seizures and prayed that we would be alert to being seized again. And those four prayers taken together have just given us some... Uh, windows through which to pray and by the way on the way out today you will receive a letter that we wrote uh, so that all of you can literally be on the same page because periodically here and there we hear stories people are saying this that and the other and often rumors start so we want everybody to hear exactly where we are at what's happening during these six months and when we'll be finishing so please make sure to pick up a copy of that letter and share that with anybody that you want anyway that's my story now stories are unique but they're not never just for the person. If we're Christians, it's never just for us. Especially as pastors. Because the life of a pastor is so completely interwoven with the life of his or her congregation. Because God never does anything in us that is just for us. It is for you. And vice versa as well. And that is especially true with this journey that I've described, this journey of 52 years of, of seizures. And by the way, I'm using seizure and crisis, which I will in the next little while, not necessarily as a bad thing, although it could involve bad things too. Not necessarily a crisis of death like in Pastor Nancy's case, but just things that happen over very short periods of time, separated by long periods in between them. That's how I'm using the words crisis and process. This story of this crisis process journey in my life is not just for me, but for you as well. And the bridge came just through where I was in my readings this week. If you, if you follow the one-year Bible, you've been reading the life of J- Joseph, Jacob and uh, into the life of Joseph. And just yesterday and today's readings take us right to the end of the life of Jacob. And I want to walk you through the story of Jacob. By the way, in our archives somewhere, I once preached six sermons on, on, on the whole life of Jacob. If any of this interests you, you may want to listen to those sermons again. But Jacob's life is, is an alternating series of crises and process. I'm just going to simply give you the, the scriptures and comment briefly on them. Genesis 25:23. And the Lord said to her, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, Two nations are in your womb, Jacob and Esau, twins there, and the two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. There was both a national prophecy 
but as well as an individual one. In those days, the older, now you need to say, how can a twin be older? It's the first one to, to come on out, uh, was identified when twins were born. The f- rights of the firstborn belong to the older. But God sovereignly said, no, in this case, the younger will be served by the older. The birthright will go to the younger one. This is part of the piece of the doctrine of election. So Christ said, at one particular moment, God declared that this would be so. Well, this was then followed by almost two, two decades. He was born. He was a stay-at-home boy. His, son, his brother Esau was a hunter of the open fields. His father Isaac favored Esau. His mother favored him. He learned to value the birthright. On one occasion, Esau had come back famished from a hunting trip. Physical needs exaggerated beyond any reality. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright and I'll give you the food I'm cooking. I mean, the birthright was already his anyway. That was Jacob's problem. What was already his, he kept trying to get the wrong way throughout. And so he bartered for the birthright. And then his mother uh, encouraged him to partake in a deceptive process by which when Isaac was on his deathbed and not able to see very clearly, Jacob pretended to be Esau to receive the formal birth blessing from his father. So the father blessed him thinking he was blessing Esau, which he shouldn't have done anyway because he knew jolly well God had said the younger will be the one who will receive the birthright. Esau, of course, hears this and he's furious and he says, I'm going to kill this guy. Rebecca finds out and she said to Jacob, just run away, run away from you. Go to my family's way 800 miles away, you know. And so that night as he's going away, the next seizure happens. He has a dream. And in the dream he sees a staircase connecting earth to heaven. And this is what we read in Genesis 28. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your offspring. In today's language, we might say that day Jacob's father's God became his God. The closest thing to what we might call conversion. So the crisis of election which happened almost 20 years ago was now followed by the crisis of salvation or conversion separated by almost two decades. Well, Jacob now continues on and there follows 20 more years of discipline as the deceiver now becomes deceived himself. His uncle turns out to be a really shrewd man and while he worked for seven years for the younger daughter whom he loved who was good looking, He was deceived into marrying the older one, the not-so-attractive one. And then, as he continued working for 20 years, Laban continued to change his wages all the time. So around about that time, God says, you you go back home now. And so he starts with his journey now with wives and children. Twelve children were born, twelve sons and and a daughter who were going to become the... uh, Ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as he comes back, he gets advance report that Esau is coming to meet him. Well, you know the last time when he ran from Esau, he had just cheated the guy out and Esau was about to kill him. So you can imagine, he was scared. 20 years would have only intensified that anger. Memories will go, memories run centuries in those parts of the world. And so the, the careful planner decides, I'm going to soften this guy up. So he divides this camp into three parts, each group of servants with some gifts. And he says, okay, group number one, you go and soften him up first. Then the next group will go give him more gifts. And the third group, and each one will put in a good word about me. And so that finally when he sees me, everything may be okay. So he sends everybody over. He sends even his wife and his children over. And he is, goes to sleep 
on the ford of the Jabbok and the, and the Jordan River that he's crossing. When all of a sudden a man jumps on him, or what seems like a man jumps on him, and the next seizure happens. And this man wrestles with him. It's really a picture of Jacob's constant wrestling with God. When all he had to do was just receive the blessing by faith. An entire life of, of wrestling, manipulating, scheming, lying, deceiving, was all pictured metaphorically in that incredible wrestling match. And, and, and this supernatural individual couldn't overcome him. That too was part of the story. It's a whole sermon in itself. It's part of that series that I mentioned. And he wounds him. Touches Jacob at the hip socket and wrenches his hip. And Jacob now powerless, desperately clings to him. And this following dialogue follows. And then he said, the, the, the man who jumped on Jacob... Let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Finally, finally he was getting the blessing the only way he was supposed to get it. Just ask for it. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. By the way, the last time somebody had asked him that question was his father. And he said, I'm Esau. Pretending to be Esau. Finally he says the truth, I'm Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel. For you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The man walked with a limp for the rest of his life. But his name was no longer Jacob, which meant deceiver, but Israel, a man who had wrestled with God and who had prevailed. Well, Jacob goes back, settles down in Canaan. His beloved wife Rachel gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. And he favors Joseph. He should have known better. He favored Joseph. And this ends up causing tension in that family. Joseph gets sold to Egypt. And there Joseph becomes second in command through a whole series of events. That's another story altogether. And he ends up actually being promoted to prime minister and Pharaoh invites Jacob and his entire family over and Jacob settles down and becomes a beautiful old man if you read the story you will find that in every case rather than repeating the sins of Abraham and Isaac this man walked deeper with God he ended up a beautiful old man and then the final crisis is the crisis of death and he's around, around his deathbed pronouncing words of blessing and words of faith and this is what we read Genesis 49. And in my Bible reading it so happened I'm at this passage today. This is what their father said to him. When he, as he blessed them. Blessing each, each of his 12 men. They were actually pointing out the history of the 12 tribes. That would come in the centuries afterwards. And then he commanded them and said to him. Notice the words of faith. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave which Abraham bought. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and, Rebekah, Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. And he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I mean, here he was. He was in Egypt. His son was second in command over all of Egypt. Who would want to go back to dirty old Canaan? But he knew that that was the promised land. And he knew they were going one day. His final words were words of blessing and words of faith. He died a beautiful old man. Now you see the story of Jacob is like mine. 
And therefore, like everyone else, it's an alternating crisis and process. First, the crisis of election, followed by almost a 20-year process of birth, youth, valuing the birthright, but going about it the wrong way, participating in deceptions. This was followed by the crisis of the dream, where his father's God becomes his God. That was followed by a process of 20 more years of discipline at the hands of his uncle Laban, where the deceiver was deceived. And then the crisis of the wrestling match with God, where he sees God and his name is changed forever. And finally, this was followed by a process of growing into a beautiful old man in Egypt. And finally, the crisis dying with words of blessing and faith on his lips. An alternating series of crises and process. My story, Jacob's story is exactly the same. And it's your story. Why is it important to understand this uh, sequence of the interplay between crisis and process? You see, because our natural tendency is to focus on the wrong thing. (laughs) Our natural tendency is to focus on the so-called critical interventions. We're waiting for the next thing to happen. Whatever that be, different for different people. We fill in the blanks in different ways. But I'm waiting, if only this happens, or when this happens, then whatever the this is. Where what we should be focusing on are the processes in between the crisis. You see, for the simple reason that every critical element is outside of our control completely. Not one of the yellow things were part Jacob's responsibility. He couldn't declare when he was still a child in the womb that the younger was going to be the boss and get the birthright. He didn't initiate the dream. He didn't initiate the wrestling match. And in my case, from being seized by the English language, from the book of Romans, to Andrew Murray's book, to John Piper's book, I didn't orchestrate any one of those things. The crises in our lives are not within our control. It is a total waste of time, therefore, to focus on them and waiting for them and trying to make them happen. Now, the processes, on the other hand, entirely are up to us. In between those crises in my life, I I had a job to read, to study, to pray, to teach, to, to get married, to have children, to learn to do a better job as a husband, to learn to do a better job as a parent, to counsel you better. All of that is the process. And that's exactly what we have control over. We should be focusing on the things that we have control over. And not worry about the things that we don't have control over. That's why it is so important to understand this. And we will shift our focus onto the right things. By the way, sometimes we can focus too much on the crisis in the past too. And try to relive the past. So let me just draw this message to a close with a personal application and then a corporate one. First of all, at an individual level. Where have you been focusing in the wrong direction? What process work have you been neglecting? Practically, what does it mean to refocus from crises to process? Well, in a sense, all three of us have been saying the same thing. Pastor Mark put it in terms of a call to just serve in the light of eternity. Pastor Chris talked about yielding the pen that is in our hand. And I want to appeal to you from from the text in Romans chapter 12. Where Paul basically writes about this. 
He says, I appeal to you, therefore, what's the therefore? The previous 11 chapters have declared for us this magnificent salvation that is ours in Jesus. He says, therefore, in the light of an incredible salvation that seized you someday. What is to be your response? What's the focus? What is the process that follows this magnificent salvation? He says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Having, the gifts, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does with acts of mercy and cheerfulness. Old Testament sacrifices were dead animals. The New Testament sacrifices are living sacrifices. You and I offering the members of our body through which the gifts are often expressed. And so serving each other, serving the body in as many ways through the gifts that God has given to us is the response to the great salvation that God has given to us. Is the process that we are to focus upon amongst other things. And he calls it worship. Worship is both the sense of God and the service of God. That is why it is a total contradiction in terms to walk out of a worship service and talk about what the, what, wasn't that an amazing, wonderful worship service we had and walk out into a week of glorious inactivity for the kingdom of God. That is a total contradiction in terms. Worship, the sense of God that is found here continues to express itself in the service of God out there. Maybe some of you in the next service as you're going to be teaching our young kids in the children's ministries. This is why the adverbs are just as important. He says, let each one exercise your gift in proportion to your faith. Not all of us have the same capacities. Some of us are redlined at 2000 RPM like diesel engines. Others of us redlined at 8000 RPM like Ferraris. I'm kind of in between somewhere. But wherever we are, hit on all eight cylinders. Step up to the plate. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. This worship. That's why we have to do it cheerfully. Not with long faces, reluctantly serving God. Cheerfully, because He's worthy. And it's therefore it's worship. Karl Barth was a the- he said, uh, uh, a joyless theologian is a contradiction in terms. You know. We have to do it with zeal, with diligence. Not half-heartedly. Not giving up in times of difficulty. But giving it our best. And then finally he says, with generosity. You give your best, not your worst. You don't give your leftovers to God. But the best of it. Why? Because he's worthy. And therefore it's worship. And precisely because it is worship. Precisely because using the members of our bodies as living sacrifices. And using the gifts that God has given to us is worship. He said it's important that we get a good handle on it. That's why he says let everyone think of themselves with sober judgment. Don't think too highly of yourself. But please also don't think lowly of yourself. That's not humility. Humility is to think accurately about yourself. With sober judgment. To acknowledge whatever gifts you have and whatever gifts you don't have. 
So that you are liberated from wasting your time in things that are not part of God's plan for your life. And you give yourself fully through the means by which you do bless and serve the kingdom. And by the way, an important part of this process may be to get a few of your close friends whom you know pray. Have them pray over you and don't tell them what to pray for. You might be surprised at how God, like he's been doing for us in these days. Anyway, that's the individual application of focusing on process. There will be other detail, but the broad, broad process function is described in these words. Now, what about us corporately? When I finish at the end of June, and Chris takes over as senior pastor, and another preaching pastor steps into this pulpit, that will be a crisis moment in the history of this church. It will be something that happens at one particular point in time, just like when I stepped into this pulpit on September 28, 1980. But let's not make the mistake of focusing on that, being anxious about that moment, or complaining as to why it's taking so long. Because that's focusing on the crisis. Now, what a focus on the process, and what does that mean for you and me to focus on the process? Remember, we've been telling you all along, it's not about finding the right person, but becoming the right people. And this solemn assembly, God gave us probably more clear instructions than he ever has in the past on what that process needs to be. If you were here on the Friday night of Solemn Assembly or the following weekend when, when Barb Manchester described for us so beautifully the pattern that God had sketched out for us. It was that we were called to be a holy orchard bearing the fruit of the Spirit. See, what's the fruit? Fruit's not about doing. Fruit's about being and becoming. Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, self-control, perseverance. That's what we need. That's what he's telling us to focus on. To become those kinds of people. You don't know who's going to come into this pulpit. You don't know what their needs may be. You don't know what we're being called to do. Just as Sham and I and our family have flourished. Our hope and our desire is that the person who replaces us will absolutely flourish in this place. Because you are a congregation that's holy orchard bearing the fruit of the spirit. Maybe he's a gardener, not an engineer who's coming here. I don't remember the last time when we revised an entire preaching calendar because of what happened at Solemn Assembly. Now we have, we have reworked it and the last major series that I'm going to be preaching on is on the fruit of the Spirit from Easter onward. And our entire church as a, will be mobilizing for nine weeks, all of the small groups and even the short term small groups will all be studying that as well. In preparation for that. Now, of course, finding the right preaching pastor is also has process responsibilities. And our elders and our pastoral search team are giving full diligence and attention to that. But the actual event is a crisis, so don't focus upon that. Another one of my one-liners that I've had many over the years is that the best way to prepare for a future we don't know is to fulfill today's responsibilities to the best of our abilities. The best way to prepare for a future that we do not know is to fulfill our present responsibilities to the best of our abilities. So before the worship team comes and leads us in two closing songs that are an affirmation of the fact that we've been called to this process of serving, just want to pause for a few moments for us to be quiet. It's time for you to reflect on your own lives, on the seizures in the past, the crisis experiences that have punctuated the moments of process.
where perhaps you might even today be focusing in the wrong direction either on a past crisis or waiting for some future crisis or maybe you have been focusing on the right part the process and you just need to recommit yourself to that maybe you need to think with sober judgment about the gifts that God has given to you maybe you've parked those gifts for a while maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines maybe the cumulative effect of these three sermons is to say I have been seized taken a hold of and now I need to take a hold of that for which Jesus has taken a hold of me what does that mean for you just pause and reflect on that for a few moments Lord, as we lift up our voices to you now, as we affirm some grand central truths along these same themes of crisis and process, of calling and service, may you continue now to add to explanation the power of imagination. Continue to shed light on our path, Father. You said that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn that gradually brightens to the brilliance of the midday sun. You said light is shed for the righteous and joy to the upright in heart. Enable us, every single one of us here, to take several steps forward in that direction. In Jesus' name, Amen. I have a strong sense that there are many of you that God is speaking to and that for some of you a, a visible commitment before the body of Christ so they can bless you is important. So as we sing this next song, which is an affirmation of that, that you are calling, that he is calling us higher. And perhaps some things have been holding us back. We're willing to say, no, Lord, no more looking back, no more waiting for some crisis I'm ready to take the next step in process. If God's moving your heart, feel free to come to the front during the song and I'd love to pray for you. And remember, I'm standing with you here. Thank you. And I'm going to invite those who are on live stream, if you have also been stirred by God, just stand where you are or kneel. And if someone in the future ever listens to this message on the internet sometime and feel that that is a moment these prayers will have effect there. God is outside of time. His prayers are going up for you as well. So will you join me as we pray? And the rest of you just stretch out your hand and bless it. This is the riches of the inheritance of Christ in the saints. And God is entrusting them to us and us to them. We are pledging ourselves to them as well. Lord, thank you. I pray that this will be a day for many. <laughs> that moment when they have been seized afresh. And I just thank you for those words. Let your mercy light the path before me. <laughs> that it is not some harsh, angry, vengeful, vindictive master that we are coming to who is going to drive us cruelly. <laughs> but it is this glorious Jesus that we have sung about. This one who has died for us to make enemies his friend. This one who lavishes his mercy, who is like a, like a potter just gently calling. Gently, gradually shaping, molding, filling, using. And so I pray, Jesus, that it is your mercy, your glory, your gentleness, your skillful hands 
will be released afresh into each of these lives. And eagerly with anticipation we look forward to how they and the body of which they are a part will be enriched and fulfilled and blessed with joy. We bless them with your grace, your power and your mercy. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Go in peace and thank you for entrusting us with your calling.